That's the familiar sound that came to define Beatlemania at the height of the Beatles' touring years. However, their billing wasn't always as hotly anticipated as it came to be. Over the course of the next hour, with the help of first-hand accounts and expert knowledge, we'll hear the story of when the yet-to-become Fab Four visited Aldershot in 1961. This is The Beatles' First Time South. The Beatles, first time south. The story of their infamous lost gig in Aldershot. To understand what really made the story of the Beatles, you have to go back beyond Abbey Road, before Shea Stadium, and even prior to Ringo Starr. In 1960, the group evolved out of the ashes of John Lennon's school band The Quarrymen, with his art school friend Stuart Sutcliffe joining to play bass. In the following 12 months, they changed their name, toured Scotland as a backing band, and secured the famed residencies at the Indra Club and the Kaiserkeller in Hamburg, hiring Pete Best on drums to perform there with them. If 1960 was the year that began to make them, 1961 was the first stepping stone on their path to Rock's stratosphere. By the start of this new year, the five-piece, back from Hamburg, restarted gigging almost daily around more and more Merseyside clubs and venues. Renowned Beatles historian Mark Lewison takes up the story. 1961 for the Beatles was the year, the first year they had in Liverpool after their initial visit to Hamburg, Germany, which had changed everything for them. Before they went to Germany the first time, which was summer 1960, they were fairly hopeless. They hadn't got a lot of stage experience. They hadn't really galvanised as a band. They were friends, but they weren't really strong as a band um, or group, as, as the word would have been then. Um, but that first trip to Hamburg was formative, and then they entered 1961 very hot. They instantly became the biggest rock and roll band in Liverpool, which had quite a thriving scene they were at the top of the bill everywhere they played and they played a lot that year they went back to Hamburg again in in the spring um, and the whole of the second half of 1961 they spent on Merseyside playing fairly rough halls suburban jive halls basically at the same time Liverpool promoter Sam Leach launched his full-time promotion business as a man who garnered greater pleasure from putting on shows rather than performing on stage, he had an unquenchable thirst for finding new bands to put on his bills. He was instrumental in getting the Merseybeat phenomenon off the ground in the clubs that he promoted at. On the 25th of January, after a tip-off that the band were now unrecognisably improved since their Hamburg stint, Leach went to check out the Beatles for the first time at a gig at the Hambleton Hall in Highton. So impressed, he followed them backstage to tell them that they're going to be bigger than Elvis, and he meant it. Within weeks, they were playing one of Leach's nights at the Casanova Club in Liverpool. This was the start of a run of over 30 nights put on by Leach that John, Paul, George and Pete played. The popularity of those nights grew hugely, with large crowds being drawn in, typified by the first Operation Big Beat night on the 10th of November. Sam Leach got the idea to put on dances at New Brighton Tower Ballroom. The, the quick history of that is that rather like 
Eiffel Tower in France. There was Blackpool Tower in Blackpool. There was going to be one at Wembley that didn't get very far off the ground. Uh, and then there was one in New Brighton, which is across the other side of the River Mersey from Liverpool. You can see New Brighton from Liverpool. It's across the water. And um, there was a, a tower there, which in the end had to be pulled down because it was unsafe. But as part of that structure, there was a huge ballroom that remained right through till about 1969. It held about 3,000 people for dancing. So a massive place and Leach put on dances there usually on a Friday night a big ambitious shows with 10 groups on the bill usually headed by the Beatles. As the scene and popularity grew so too did promoters ambitions. Sam Leach put on he put on great shows Operation Big Beat at New Brighton Tower there really hadn't been anything else like that not only in Liverpool but in Britain and probably the world I would say I mean, he really was ahead of his time in the, in the scale of his shows, you know, the five-hour shows with 10 bands on the bill. Um, but as I said, there was often something with Sam that it just wouldn't quite go as smoothly as it ought to have done because he, he'd put cart before horse in his organisation. And so if there was an opportunity to play for him, typically you would take it because you needed to play somewhere and you would eventually get paid. I mean, he wasn't a crook, Sam Leach. He was just over-enthusiastic. Um, but he was one of the characters on that scene. You know, all the promoters were characters as well as all the young guys were characters. It was, it was a really exciting scene that got changed and in a way spoiled by success. Because once the Beatles broke through onto a national stage and all the other record producers and... Um, impresarios in London rushed up to Liverpool believing there would be a well of talent there which indeed there was then the scene was never the same again uh, but in that period in 1961 it was rough but it was the best year really for what was going on up there. By late 1961 the Beatles were already acknowledged as the best band on Merseyside. The next natural step was to grow the band's popularity away from the area with eyes firmly being fixed on London. Sam Leach, keen to be the first to take this big step with the band ahead of other promoters, sent down his close friend Terry McCann to seek out potential venues in the capital for the group to play. On his return, he informed that finding a venue had been difficult, leading to a failed attempt for Leighton Baths to be booked, along with other central London venues. The only option available turned out to be Aldershot, not in London, but in Hampshire. Down he travelled to London soon after to offer the Beatles to around 10 agents in the capital. His hope was that he would encourage London impresarios to go and see the Beatles and they would, of course, be swept away by how great they were uh, and pick them up and in some way, you know, through him, they would get a foothold in London. Um, I mean, it was naive thinking anyway because had any of these impresarios in London actually uh, been interested in the Beatles, they would have wanted to take them over, not merely book them through Sam. So he went to the office of a man called Tito Burns, who was one of the big agents and promoters at that time. And T he hadn't got an appointment with Tito. He went to his office. Tito happened to be there. But Sam outstayed his welcome and 
Tito said, you've got to go now. And in the end, they were kind of having a shouting match. So that backfired. Um, but I think that he probably returned to Liverpool telling the Beatles that there was some chance that when they played Aldershot, there would be some star makers in the audience. And it was worth doing on that basis. It must be stated that no A&R team from a record label would ever bother to travel out of London to head to Aldershot to watch an unknown group. That wasn't the way it worked in those days, and no London agent would have turned up either. Undeterred, however, Sam Leach was convinced that when they witnessed the Beatles' performance and the reaction of the fans, they would be speeding the 37 miles up to London to pen contracts for the Beatles. Next, he contacted Bob Potter, the local impresario who ran many venues in the area and booked in five consecutive Saturdays, beginning on the 9th of December. The unlikely venue was Aldershot in Hampshire, at the time known as the home of the British Army, not the home of rock and roll. He planned to go big on promotion, billing it similarly to those successful large nights back in Liverpool by calling the run of five nights as the Big Beat Sessions. In conjunction with this, he had leaflets and posters printed, announcing the first night to be a battle of the bands. It was to be advertised as Liverpool versus London, with the Beatles representing Liverpool and little-known act Ivor J and the Jaywalkers appearing for the South. All that was left to do was to write off to the local newspaper, requesting an advert be placed and send payment for it. Once done, the countdown then began. On Saturday the 9th of December, the band woke up only a few hours after stepping off stage the previous night, having played another Operation Big Beat night to over 4,000 rapturous fans, again at the New Brighton Tower Ballroom. Knowing he'd be travelling a lot, Sam wanted to travel in style, and so hired a befitting car for a month, and arranged for another of his close friends, Dave Johnston, to chauffeur him down to Aldershot. The Beatles and their gear would be heading south separately, being driven by Terry McCann in a separate van. Terry McCann remembered the long journey down to Aldershot after the success of the night before at the Tower. They set off really early, Sam in the car with Dave and him in the van with the Beatles. John was in the front of course, but so was Pete and Paul, and there was not enough room for him to drive properly, so someone had to go in the back with George. They set off around 5am that Saturday, having been fuelled up with bacon sandwiches at Sam's. As there was no motorway at the time, they were facing a very long journey to North Hampshire. En route, they stopped at a cafe somewhere in Staffordshire, though didn't receive the warmest of welcomes. After a bit of rowdiness, they tipped them out of the door, deeming their scruffy leathers an image not suitable for a respectable cafe. On the way out, it was reportedly John Lennon who scratched the Beatles were here on the door as payback. While Sam and the Beatles never really knew what they were travelling down to Aldershot to be greeted by, someone who knew the area and knew the scene well was erstwhile rocker and frontman of his own band in the 60s, Alan Hope. Well, the scene around Aldershot was just like any other town, I suppose, in the country. I mean, it was shortly after the Second World War. I mean, all us young lads who grew up in the 1950s rock and roll era were born in the 1940s. Of course... Coming from Aldershot, we knew all about the army, well, at least I did. And uh, fortunately, we were the first era of teenage boys to miss the national call-up. Bearing in mind I'm just two days older than Paul McCartney, 
a year older than Mick Jagger, and Cliff Richard a year older than me, and many, many more. Had National Call-Up carried on, we would have all been called up in 1959 or 1960 and gone off somewhere abroad. Uh, all that British rock and roll era would never have started. There would never have been any Beatles, Rolling Stones, Animals, Kinks, or anything like that, because they would never have met. That was so, what was so exciting about it. Probably 1955, 56, 57, myself, Paul McCartney, all the other young lads, we all heard this wonderful rock and roll coming from America. And we thought, yeah, we love that. We want to do that. So we did. What was good with the Aldera area, and always was good, it won't be so good now, was there was lots and lots of bandsmen in the army, the army band. And of course, night times, they wanted to be out playing jazz and pop and stuff there. And, they, and there was always, never a shortage of musicians, ever. There might be a shortage of a drummer or two, but never a shortage of musicians. Mostly around here, if you didn't work for Bob Potter in those days, you didn't, you didn't work at all. Or, or Mike Burton, Mike Burton was the other chap. He was, Mike Burton was the chap who ran the, the central ballroom. He was a bit of an agent too. But mainly, we all worked for Bob Potter mainly, and uh, we all basically got on together. We, we were friends. Never any animosity. There may have been a bit of, bit of jealousy between one or two bands because one band maybe got a recording contract and the other one didn't. But unfortunately, nobody who ever worked for Bob really made it. Aldershot resident and regular dance goer at the time, Irene Stoker. Well, Aldershot was quite small then, and everybody knew everybody. Because once we once we got to twelve years of age, we all went to the same school. Yeah, everybody everybody knew everybody else basically. Unless they were the army guys. We we all got to they they liked Aldershot, the army guys. There are good memories of nights out in Aldershot and how popular it became. Yes, we did. Really good time in at that particular time Aldershot was Bob Potter was the guy that used to run the dances. We had the pally and then we had the central ballroom. Always with bands, yeah, really good place to be. And even um, the boys used to come down to the Pally from London, go to to the Pally. Yeah, they did. They used to come down on the train in their little short jackets. Maybe then Aldershot was to be a good booking, and it may prove a busy night. Back on the road, and in all, it took them a rather tiring nine hours to reach Aldershot. When they arrived, Sam told the group that he'd promoted the gig in a big way and bought a copy of the Aldershot News to show it off to the lads, expecting to see a large advert publicising the gig. However, there was nothing listed in it. A mix-up between Sam Leach and the Aldershot News meant the gig hadn't been advertised. Sam maintained he'd booked a sizeable advert in the newspaper and sent a cheque down to cover the cost. Angrily, he went to the newspaper's office and discovered the advert didn't appear because only cash bookings were accepted by the newspaper from first-time advertisers, and not cheques. It was also explained that because he hadn't left an address or a number, the paper couldn't contact him about that rule. With the advert never appearing, would it mean the locals still would? On a day and night that offered many contrasts to what became de rigueur for the Beatles, the venue was one of those two. The night before, the Tower Ballroom was huge, grand and packed. In contrast, here's Alan and Irene with memories of the Palais. It was nothing really special. If you got 300 people in there, you were really... It was, it was, it was, it was packed. There wouldn't have been a lot of room for dancing. The people managed. But to get 250, 200, 225 was quite comfortable, you know. 
it wasn't anything special at all. Just a, a dance floor, a stage, a little dressing room and a, and a back door in and out for bringing the gear in. So you used to have to pay at the door when you went in. It was only a small place and you just walked in the door and the left was where you paid to go in. Then you went in the other little door and you were in, basically. Dance floor and a stage at the end. And then there was a little flight of stairs where you went up and there was a little room upstairs. But it was a place to be because there was a um, sort of quite a long slimish hall, probably about this width. And then each side was a row of chairs and the row of chairs the other side, a bit like the church hall, really. And, um, and that was it. It was like, really, I mean, if that was in the village, that, that would have been the local village hall. That's the sort of place it was. It did look like a village hall, really. I took a visit to the side of the palais with Alan Hope. Well, it's nothing like it used to be. Obviously, the walls are the same. Um, if we look along the front there, that, that little door was a big wide door. And inside there was a receptionist where they, 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 they somebody sat and took the money off if you went in. And um, if you walked along the back here, where you see those two garage entrances, that would have been the stage area. And that's about as big as it was, really. You get 250 to, to 300 at a push. Yeah. But the Beatles only ate 11. <laughs> the booking, of course, at the Palais meant the bands that normally played there had to look elsewhere. Here's Alan Hope. I was called Kerry Rapid, as in a name such as Billy Fury or Marty Wilde or Tommy Steele or, or, or um, Dickie Pride, Johnny Gentle. I was Kerry Rapid. And I had a band called the Blue Stars. And we all come from Farnborough, Aldershot, Camberley, and our drummer lived in Aldershot. And we used to play at the Aldershot Pally most weekends. And I suppose it must have been early November, 1961. Bob Potter, who owned the Aldershot Pally, said, well, have that weekend off because um, I've hired the, the, the ballroom out to, I hired the Pally out to somebody from, from Liverpool, a battle of the bands, North against South. So um, who's on then, Bob, any idea? He didn't have any idea who was on at all. <laughs> and of course, when, when, we, when, when we heard this, we couldn't play that, we, we couldn't play them that night. Lo and behold, just around the corner, there was another ballroom called the Central Ballroom. And the chap here run that, uh, he, he, my, my, our drummer, a couple more, as I said, Rocky Ford, he knew him very well. And he was talking to him in the local coffee bar one day and he said, well, I've got a cancellation on that day. Why don't you come and play play the the central ballroom? So we did. Once again, nobody ever heard of the Beatles. Um, when I, myself and my band played at the Aldershot Pally, it was always packed to the hilt. About 250, 300 people there every time. So we played at the at the central ballroom the same night the Beatles played at the Aldershot Pally. The Palais Ballroom was situated on the corner of Queen's Road and Perone Street, on the edge of the town centre. It was locked up when they arrived at around 5pm and they had to wait for the staff to come and open it up. Once in, they unloaded the equipment and set up the gear, and Sam went out into town to find the posters that Terry had put up a few days before had been torn down. This, alongside the lack of advert, made the travelling contingent wonder whether someone had attempted to sabotage the booking Certainly the sort of thing and the sort of stunt that used to be pulled. Never, I never really saw any posters up. But um, I guess the chap at the central ballroom just, around, just down the road did. 
Because if you're reading the book, he says he told you how to pull them down, <laughs> but um, he but he didn't do it. He followed them around whilst they were putting them up. Whilst the, whilst they weren't looking, whilst the paste was still wet, you take them down again. The posters had originally advertised the Battle of the Bands as Liverpool versus London. Although the billing advertised two other star groups, this was a bit of creative advertising, as there were in fact no other groups booked, just the Beatles and Ivor J and the Jaywalkers. Claiming John, Paul, George and Pete were direct from their German tour, as well as Ivor J being one of London's top beat groups, had the posters remained where they were, it's impossible to understand how Aldershot could have passed up such a promising evening. Additionally, there was to be a bar and buffet, all only costing five shillings. However, even if the posters had remained up, how effective would they have been? I think they were advertised, but it was more word, word of mouth, you know. Somebody would know it and they'd say, oh, is it going to be a really good group I saw them at such and such a place or something like that. But mostly we just went and who was on was on. They did advertise outside the pally who was on, or just one, one post probably then, saying who was on on Saturday. Alan attests to the local power of word of mouth. Myself and my drummer and all the rest of us local lads from Farnborough, Camberley and all the shop, we pass the word around that we won't be, wouldn't be at the pally that day. We will be at the central ballroom. So word soon got around and I was quite a bit of a, a local hero in my own in my own way, my own day, if I don't mind saying so. And well, so I'm told anyway. And um, of course, we filled the place. In his book, The Best Years of the Beatles, Pete Best recounted the evening. They went and had a bite to eat, fish and chips and a couple of pies. The doors opened at half seven and there was nothing. When the doors opened, they usually expected the place to be filling up. Eight o'clock, there were only half a dozen people. So the group asked Sam, Shall we go on, Sam? No one's going to turn up. Sam tried to keep the very small queue outside for a bit longer than they'd like, trying to help show passers-by that there was something happening at the Palais that night. This was a promotion trick he picked up earlier in his promotions in Liverpool. However, it simply didn't work on this night. You read in stories there was 18 people turned up at the, at the Aldershot Palais for the Beatles. That's not quite true, there was 11. The 18 made up the six of the four Beatles, Terry McCann, the road manager, and um, Sam Leach, their manager. That made the 18, so there's only 11 there. Um, supposedly, probably never even paid because he'd be letting them in for nothing, just to, just, just, to, just to boost the crowd. Well, around the corner, we have, once again, we had 300 people packed out. Now, had Sam Leach had done a bit of a homework, and had we have been on with the Beatles at the Aldershot Pally, then the Aldershot Pally would have been packed. Sam Leach's answer was to head over the road to the pubs along Queen's Road, such as the Rising Sun and the Cambridge, to invite people to come over. He also headed to the White Hart pub, metres from the Palais, and bought bottles of Watney's Pale Ale for the thirsty visitors. Leach also stopped people in the streets to come in and see what was happening, to try and make the numbers up. But that didn't work either. He was stopping anyone passing by to tell them about the gig. Of course, they would come in, have a quick look around, say it was boring, and go off somewhere else. The amazing thing is that the Beatles played for about four hours to these people. Instead of just going, ah, oh, stuff it, Sam, we're not even going to bother playing, there were some people there, and they got up and they played. And we know this because 
one of the characters who came down from Liverpool with them was a friend of Leach's called Dick Matthews, who I think worked for the tax office, but was a, a photographer in his spare time. He had a good camera and took good photographs as a, as a kind of, you know, budding professional, though actually it wasn't his job. And he brought his camera with him on that trip and took a whole load, I think, a, a film of the Beatles playing on stage in Aldershot, which is an extraordinary record of an extraordinary show where almost no one came, but the pictures are fantastic. And they really did play for hours to these few people. One of those few people there was Irene Stoker. We used to sometimes say, oh, what should we do on Saturday? Should we go to the Pally or should we go down the Central? And my friend, Pat, we both lived in the same house in Perone Street. And um, she, her boyfriend had dumped her, so she was fed up and she wanted to go to the Pally. And I said, oh, I don't know. In the end, we, we both got dressed and up we went. Just a couple of yards up the road, isn't it, from where we lived. And, uh, and there we were in the Pally and didn't, didn't know who the Beatles were. And when they came, they were, I don't think they were very impressed with, with the Pally itself because it was, uh, it was small. And I think they, they were probably thinking they were going to a bigger venue. And um, I think it was John that said, because we had like flowery flocked wallpaper on the wall and you commenting and saying oh looks like my grandmother's front room <laughs> my granny's front room or something like that he said about the wall and we were saying blue and cheese you know this is like our dance hall and it was just um they didn't play a lot they didn't play an awful lot of tunes because we were talking to them and um mucking about really to add to the night's woes the london band invited Either Jay and the Jaywalkers failed to turn up. With so much going wrong even before they went on, the Beatles were hesitant to play for what crowd that there was. It was Paul, though, who said, let's show them that they were professionals, and got the four of them on stage to start playing. He himself let rip with one of his long-time favourites, Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, putting everything into his delivery. Then it was over to John to do Memphis, Tennessee. The set continued with numbers the boys featured regularly in their act, plus rock and roll standards, as they let their hair down in front of their minuscule audience. They then carried on with a very familiar set, to them anyway, with the hits of Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis and Eddie Cochran, amongst others. The Beatles were different in that they only ever played what they wanted to play, uh, and they pleased themselves, and they played quite a lot of numbers that the crowds didn't know at all. Um, but they did it with such verve and charm and brilliance that they they were original, you see. There were lots of groups playing this rock and roll circuit in Liverpool, but the Beatles were different because they dared to be different, because they didn't do what everybody else did. Uh, they were always different. They were always original thinkers, and they looked different, and they sounded different, and their presentation was different. And this was what attracted Brian Epstein uh, and encouraged him to want to be their manager because they were unusual. As soon as you saw them, you knew that there was nothing else like this around. And although they always had their copyists, the Beatles, whatever they did, people copied them. No one else could ever do it quite like they did. 
George impressively knew all the Chuck Berry intros, so they were always performed, and Paul would have led on Till There Was You, because he always insisted on doing that, despite less love for it from the rest of the band. Terry McCann, in an interview with Beatles historian David Bedford in 2015, added that you can imagine what it was like for the Beatles with about four people dancing and six miserable faces standing around the edge looking on. They did their best, but it was no use. This was no reflection on the band, as it wasn't a rough and unrehearsed group that turned up in Aldershot, but their performance that night reflected the disastrous circumstances that they found themselves in. Pete Best wrote, Some of them didn't even take their overcoats off. They got on the stage, danced around the floor, and the people who were dancing must have wondered what on earth was going on. Here are the Beatles from Liverpool. They're jumping off stage, putting their coats on and dancing with people. They're not rock and roll, they're doing ballroom dancing. It really must have seemed like they couldn't care less, and that there was no one there to see their antics that they were getting up to anyway. They were always free and easy anyway, you know, with with things that might occur in the moment. They were never so rigid that they would turn down the opportunity for something interesting to happen. But when you've only got, a, let's say, 18 people present, then and you're playing for that length of time, then you really can. You don't have to be in the least bit rigid about what you do. You can just, you, you've really got to amuse yourself, haven't you, in, in such a situation. Um, Paul was always the, the, the most keen um, to make a good impression on people. And he had this view, which I think prevailed in Aldershot as well as anywhere else, was that no matter how few people are in, let's give them our best show. Because then if we come back again, those people might remember us and they might have said to their friends, saw a really good group the other night. If they come back, let's definitely go and see them. Which is when you've got so few people in the hall, a particularly extraordinary attitude to have because... I mean, were they ever going to come back to Aldershot? Were, you know, if it was a year or more than a year later, would it really matter if three of those 18 people had said to two friends each, I saw a great group, if ever they come back, let's all go. I mean, it's, it's an extreme position to take in such a situation. But Paul says they, he did. And I can, I, I can believe it because that was his personality. And, it obviously was one that succeeded. I mean, he always did want to be, they all wanted to be successful. They all wanted to be famous. Um, this was pushing their luck in terms of thinking that any great moment, any great uh, succession would come from playing to 18 people in Aldershot when no one's ever heard of them before. And they must have stuck out like a sore thumb amongst the people who did see them because nobody else in entertainment dressed like the Beatles did and nobody else looked like the Beatles did or sang songs the Beatles sang. Um, but nonetheless, that's what they did. They, they played to those few people for potentially up to four hours. There might've been some levity along the way, but fine. And there they were, they, were, they, were, they, they fulfilled the booking for Sam. There was even one point of the evening where Pete Best decided he wished to sing and to leave of his drum kit meaning they needed a drummer. Paul often stood in for him. However, this evening, Terry McCann took the sticks and played along for a couple of songs, whilst Pete Best, pictured fantastically in Dick Matthews' wonderful photos of the evening, sang to the small crowd. I think at one time, one of the guys jumped up on the stage and started playing with the drums. <laughs> they were on the floor. They were on the floor, dancing and talking to us. And 
one of the guys jumped up on the stage and started having a little bang about on the drums. I think they were kind of showing off a bit. They were um, integrating with us. They probably thought we were no good. They probably thought, oh, no, I mean, this is good enough for us. I think that's what it was, but they didn't say it in a, a nasty way. It was just sort of what they weren't expecting, I would think. Whilst the boys were performing the first half of the set, Sam was standing on looking desperately at the thinly patroned dance floor. He even took action and pleaded with those dancing to spread out to make the place look a little busier. Respite came in the form of the show's interval, during which, typically, Lennon was the first to give Sam some feedback by being the most cutting. He was saying, Hey Leachy, isn't this supposed to be a battle of the bands? Where's the local group then? Sam admitted that he'd never actually had even a thought about that, but he was very pleased because it was one less group to have to pay. When the group took their break, a desperate Sam rushed around nearby pubs and coffee bars to garner more punters. Unfortunately, some of the few dancers already in the Palais were not impressed with the best that Liverpool had to offer and were heading off to rival dances at the Central Club. Amongst those was Brian Ballard and his wife Anne. In Secret Aldershot by Paul H. Vickers, Brian said that the music had no rhythm or beat to it. They tried to jive, but they couldn't keep in time to the beat. After a couple of numbers, they gave up and went to the central ballroom instead. As we've heard already, there was a big crowd in there that night. However, curiosity got the better of Alan and wanted to find out what was happening at the Palais. During the break, my break at the, uh, at the central ballroom, I wandered up the road, it wasn't far away, and looked through the door, saw how many people was there, and nobody was really interested. The band was on the stage mucking about, not not being really interested in playing, really. Just seemed to be having a laugh and a joke. And when I came here to have a look, see what we got, another couple followed me down anyway. Oh, we've committed to see you. Well, well, I was we were playing down the road, you know. Oh, no, we didn't know. So they come back down there with me. To make matters worse, Sam wasn't able to get the Palais record player working, so the break was cut short to just 15 minutes, so that there was not too much silence for the diminutive gathering to sit through before being able to dance again. Jumping back on stage after the interval, Pete Best remembered, halfway through one number, George and John put on their overcoats and took to the floor to dance a foxtrot together, while the rest of them struggled on, making enough music for them and the handful of spectators to dance to. This too was captured by Dick Matthews in his photos, alongside one picture of Paul McCartney dancing solo. This could well have been taken after an attempt to try and ingratiate himself with the locals. I think it was Paul, yeah, Paul that asked me to dance and I wouldn't dance with him. So I thought he was a bit cocky, you know, he sort of said, dance, you know, and I said, oh no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a dance with him. A bit peeved, I think. <laughs> and I tell people that Paul McCartney asked me for a dance, especially my grandchildren, they went, what? Really? No, and I said, yeah, and I said, I turned him down. <laughs> Once removing dancing shoes, they returned to the stage to carry on with the set, clowning around for most of the second half. John and Paul were deliberately playing wrong chords and notes and added words to the songs that were never there in the original lyrics, purely just to entertain themselves. This, in many ways, was all they could do because fewer and fewer people were left at the Palais uh, towards the end of the performance. There weren't that many people there anyway that particular night. There weren't a lot of dancers at the party, not, not many local people went that particular night. And then we all left and went down the central. Everybody, everybody left and went down the central because we, oh God, they're no good. Let's just go this one. We all went down the central. 
What would have been a momentous day for Aldershot ended up in the history books, but for all the wrong reasons. The Beatles would end the night as victors of the Battle of the Bands, but considering Ivor Jay and his group didn't show up, it was a hollow victory. They cut their losses after putting on a long performance and packed up. Pete Best's recollections of the set was that they came off, got hold of Sam and said, Sam, Sam, what have you done to us? He said, don't worry boys, I'll pay you your money. To which he responded, we know you'll pay us the money, there's no problem on that side. And Sam finally finished with, I don't know what went wrong, he couldn't put his finger on it. Sam maintained that though the Beatles were hardly on top form that night, they stuck at it and won enthusiastic applause from those who stayed until the bitter end. According to Sam, if you believe everyone who said they were there for the Beatles, they would have had 500 people. His recollections also included one girl saying to him, I've never seen a band like this before. Whether that was a positive or negative comment, however, is still undecided. Then Sam produced the beer that he'd bought earlier from the White Hart, and bingo balls were also discovered, leading to an impromptu football match, Liverpool versus Aldershot. As the drink was drunk, the bingo balls flew. Sam said that John Lennon kept kicking him, and he was on his side. Being physically as well as metaphorically kicked when down, it was yet another setback for Sam. The noise the group had been making in the hall whilst playing this football match on the dance floor led to a neighbour phoning the police to complain, and when they emerged the police were there. They promptly suggested that the Beatles should say their goodbyes to Aldershot and never return. But John Lennon wasn't finished and wanted to leave his mark on Aldershot. Sam recalled that John was going to throw a brick through the window and he actually stopped him and he said, I'll do it. He took the brick off him and then Paul stopped Sam doing it. They threw their equipment into the van and went on their way within five minutes. Having driven out of Aldershot, they pulled over and stopped to discuss their next move. With taking next to nothing at the door and drinking Aldershot dry of Watney's, Sam was running out of money. It was decided, though, to hit London, with Sam agreeing to pay the group when they got back to Liverpool, spending what earnings there was left on drink that night in town. They were all hoping to put the debacle of the Palais behind them and end the night well in the big smoke. Heading north to London, they eventually found themselves at the club with two names, the Blue Gardenia before midnight, and then known as the All-Nighter after. The owner of the All-Nighter turned out to be Brian Casser, whose name in fact inspired Sam's naming of his first club, the one that he'd booked the Beatles to play at no less, the Casanova Club. As luck would have it, the All-Nighter was the meeting place for many of London's rock bands. Sam reflected that no doubt many of them were in Tito Burns' mind when he advised Sam of there being so many in London which didn't need the Beatles. Whilst there are differing accounts of who performed what, it is believed that at moments during the night Paul and John went on stage and joined the musicians already up there playing, who reluctantly agreed. They blasted through Larry Williams' Slow Down, and Chan Romero's hippie hippie shake with determination to prove their worth to onlookers. Terry McCann recalled that one of those onlookers that evening could well have been Georgie Fame. Sam is also quoted, poetically, by stating that they then applied the coup de grace with performing Twist and Shout, a song they'd go on to perform on London stages for years to come. Other tales state that George did join in, with recollections stating someone noted, that's a fine guitar player you've got there. And that would have been George. Mark Lewison. 
Then they had to get back to Liverpool. They had to find somewhere to sleep. Well, Sam hadn't booked them any overnight accommodation. He hadn't provided any food. They couldn't get anything to eat. They were tired. They were hungry. They were irritable. Terry McCann didn't have enough petrol to get back to Liverpool, so they had to siphon some from somebody's car uh, or another van or something. Um, Terry McCann fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, and also Sam told them that, you know, they, they'd done all this for a £20 fee, but he only had 12 so he'd have to pay them the, eight, the remaining eight quid some other time. And so they, they decided to freeze him out of the van drive home. They didn't talk to him for the entire nine hours or whatever it took to get back to Liverpool, which must have been fairly hellish. They weren't even excited by the prospect of putting their feet up. Their schedule at this time was so busy that they had another performance that evening. They got back to Liverpool so late on the Sunday that they only just turned up with about 15 minutes to spare at the end of their Sunday night booking, which was in Heighton. And with fantastic symmetry, by that point of the night, there was only about 18 people left to see them. So they played to 18 people two nights running, not just once. With that weekend finally over and behind them, Focus turned to another gig at the Tower that coming week, as well as the second visit to Aldershot for the run of bookings Sam had made with Bob Potter. The Beatles had been due to play consecutive Saturdays, but they had had enough of Aldershot, and so the following Saturday the bill had Rory Storm and the Hurricanes lined up to play the Palais. On drums that night was a certain Ringo Starr. During that week... Sam found himself travelling south once again, visiting the newspaper offices to complain about the non-appearance of the advert. Terry McCann said that Sam had the car on hire for a month, so he got good use out of it with those trips to Aldershot. He'd had enough by then, so Dave Johnston would be driving Sam down south in the midweek and then on Saturday for Rory's gig. He also booked a new advert for that Friday's newspaper to advertise the next night's dance with Rory Storm. This did make it to print. This advert, much like the one for the 9th of December for the Beatles, was advertised as the Big Beat Sessions, Battle of the Bands 2, Liverpool versus London. This time Mr Golden Boy himself, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, against the infamous Ivor Jay and the Jaywalkers. And there are no photos of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes playing there, no accounts of them playing there, um, but the Beatles won. It ended up coming to auction, which is how we know what it looks like, because, you know, it, it appeared in an auction catalogue and then got, you know, it was photographed. So somewhere has the original of that. I think there's a few originals around. This led to that night being a success with over 200 paying the five shillings entrance fee to get into the Palais to dance to Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Undeterred from the previous week's dance, Irene and friends went back to the Palais the week after. Yeah, we... We used to have different groups. We had one called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Yeah. Remember them? So I didn't realise they were Liverpool, but yeah, he, they were good. We used to like them. Yeah, we used to like Rory Storm. That's another one we had there, Ivor Jay and the Jaywalkers. That was another group we had there. I can remember Ivor Jay and the Jaywalkers playing there. So they must have been there at one time, because sometimes they used to get the same ones back at times, I would think. This is in spite of Kerry Rapid again starring at the Central Ballroom that night. The following week, same thing happened. Um, Sam Leach had booked the Aldershot Palais for five weeks. And the following week, the Beatles were supposed to be on, but the Beatles didn't want to do it because after the, after the first time, 
So Sam Leach put on Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And of course, with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes at that time, Ringo Starr was the drummer. Ringo Starr wasn't the drummer when the Beatles played at Aldershot, it was Pete Best. Um, so all the Beatles actually played at all, uh, played the Aldershot Palais, but with different bands. Within a fortnight, within a week, basically, of each other. They made over £70. And even though this was a success, Sam cancelled the third night he originally booked with Bob Potter and never returned there. Neither did the Beatles. The good people of Aldershot had their chance to see them, and all but 18 of them blew it. But I don't think there were any others after that. I think he relinquished any for to the next one or three bookings that he had um, with this guy called Bob Potter. And that was the end of the excursion. And it didn't make Rory Storm and the Hurricanes famous either. Alan Hope capitalised and returned for Saturday the 23rd at the Palais Ballroom, again pulling a large crowd who'd followed them back from the Central. Owing to the busy night at the Central that evening and the events that unravelled thereafter, local legend has served up Alan with a claim to the success. Now, the theory is, had the Aldershot gig at the Aldershot Pay been a great success, the Beatles would have stayed with Sam Leach as their manager, probably gone back to Liverpool and never been heard of again. So I tend to think, I'm inclined to think, a lot of people agree with me, a lot of people suggested them to me, I probably did, unbeknown to myself and them, I probably did the beat was the greatest favour of their life. <laughs> the news of the evening didn't remain only in Hampshire, and the legend fostered also on Merseyside. And as Bob Wooler, who was the doyen of Liverpool uh, announcers and promoters, um, said, you shouldn't organise something 200 miles away if you haven't got the organisational skill to back it up. But he was right. I mean, what an absolute farce it was. It's gone down as, as a great story, and it is a great story. But when you look at it from their point of view, it was just, it was just a, a horrible thing. To go all that way and, and find that it hasn't been advertised and find you not being paid properly and you haven't got the fuel to get back and you have to steal some and you haven't eaten properly and you haven't slept properly, that's actually not a good gig. It's a great story, but in, from their point of view, I mean, if Sam was hoping that this would make the Beatles make uh, appoint him as their manager, it was the nail in the coffin of any hope he had of, of being their manager. If the Aldershot appearance had been the big success as Sam Leach had hoped for, and if the Beatles had performed as planned for consecutive Saturdays at the Aldershot Palais in front of many London promoters, agents and record producers, who knows how the career would have progressed? Ifs and buts, however, don't make stars. And as it was, it only served to confirm their suspicions and decision to go with Brian Epstein's management. The upshot is, because there was the disaster of the Aldershot Pally, the Beatles said to Sam Leach after that, well, look, we've got a new manager on the raid. And they went off with Brian Epstein. They were just about to sign a contract uh, for management with Brian Epstein, who had never managed an act before, but clearly had their best interests at heart. And amongst many attributes that Brian had was impeccable organisation. Uh, well, that's the very opposite of what they were getting from Sam. And I'm not saying that to criticise Sam. He would say it of himself were he still here. It was just one of those things. He was an enthusiast, but not a great organiser. Uh, he did say that about himself, and enthusiasm can take you a long way, but ultimately you're going to fall over because things aren't organised properly. Well, in Brian Epstein, they were going to be very well organised, and they profited from that organisation immediately 
and it held them in good stead all the way through to his death. Little did anyone in attendance that night know, apart from the band, what they would go on to become. Here's Irene Stoker's memories of when they first heard them. When the Beatles brought their first record out, we said, it can't be that beat the Beatles that were at the party. Couldn't possibly be them, but it was. I had a friend, Shirley, and she, she came down with the, with the little record, you know, the little single player, as we called them. And she said, listen to this. And uh, we had a listen, and she said, guess who it is? And she, we, she said, the Beatles. I said, what, the Beatles, you know? And it was, the Beatles that came to Aldershot. Yeah, I thought, oh, it'd probably be just a one-off kind of thing. But no, no, they became very, very famous, didn't they? But I, I did like their songs. I loved some, They were really, really good musicians and um yeah some of their songs had beautiful words to them and they were good they were they were excellent once they got going yeah yeah they were given their due you know that particular night was a different night (laughs) we never have another night like that again as we know they never returned to aldershot the nearest they came was when performing at guildford's odeon in june of 1963 as well as converging at ringo's house in elstead during the get back sessions in 69. As for Sam, he continued his promotion business, but with focus remaining on Merseyside. In December of 1980, he organised the memorial service and candlelit vigil for John Lennon outside St George's Hall in Liverpool, less than a week after his passing. This attracted tens of thousands of people all coming to show their respect. The Beatles did appear on a good many more nights for him well into 1962, chiefly at the large Tower Ballroom, with their final night for him coming in early September of that year. One month on from that final date, they released Love Me Do and, well, you know the rest. (laughs) ¶¶ 